Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood, and with me tonight is my good friend and co-host, Demix. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. So, Chad, um, what is the state of the box office? Because it appears, low to my very weary eyes, that the video game movies have once again become a successful thing. The box office. Um, I barely peeked at it because I knew that, uh, again, Super Mario Brothers was in the lead. Uh, and I knew that the Evil Dead movie was second. And I knew that there was a sizable gap between the both of them. So it looks like Mario made... Uh, Mario is on track to do Avatar numbers. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it is not lasting. I mean, it could. It's actually made almost $60 million this weekend. It, it uh, had a, it, Yeah, it had a 40% or 50% drop this week and still won it by a landslide. Yeah. And also, like, it's already passed 400 million domestic. And, yeah, so, yeah. and this weekend it passed 800 million domestic. So you're you're looking at a billion dollar movie, Chad. Oh, yeah. I think a billion dollars is squarely that that's going to happen. Uh, it's it's got good legs. And part of that is that there's nothing coming out to compete with it. Like Evil Dead is uh, it made twenty four point five million. But that is clearly not the same audience as Mario. Uh, and again, once when you're getting to these kind of numbers, that means people are going back repeatedly to see it. And I think that's what's been missing um, from a lot of these movies. Like uh, we've had movies that have opened really big, but then nobody like people want to see it. They go out see it the first weekend, and that's it. Uh, to to hit these high marks, you have to have repeat business. And there's nothing else out there that's a, a family quadrant. You know, four quadrant family movie, Super Mario is it, and it has all the other trappings of the you know uh, established franchise uh, nostalgia for the old folks. That means that if they have those nostalgia for the old folks, people that grew up with the first Nintendo, that's like our demographic. Most of us have kids; we bring kids, and we're going back repeatedly. Uh, it, it's it shows that the movies does still have life. If you give people something that they want to go see, um, I would love to see it do. I mean, I, I know it's, it's going to do a billion. While it might have Avatar trajectory, what's about to happen is it's going to run up against the summer season that's going to cut that out. But, you know, it's just going to be one Chris Pratt movie panning the baton to the next one. That's where we're at right now. You know what's insane? What is insane is the fact that Illumination just prints money as a company. Like even even the Secret Life of Pets movies that no one apparently loved, but like they still made a boatload of money. It's crazy. Like, that is a good all, point. I, all I three of the Despic- all three of the Despicable Me's were billion like really high box office. Both of the Minions movies, including the pseudo like fourth, the pseudo the suit like the point five Despicable Me that is mm-hmm. the Rise of Gru. Um, the the two. Uh, Secret Life of Pets movies, um, and now the Super Mario Brothers movie, like they just print money over there. It's crazy for that little French animation studio. Yeah, and and like you said, most people don't love any of those movies. They might like people like the minions, but I think a lot of people, especially adults, have like had their fill of the minions, but they still make boatloads of money and I think I took my daughter to see the first Minions, and that's the last one we've seen in theaters, but they've all still made a billion dollars. Like, I think the first Despicable Me didn't, but everything else in that little franchise has. Secret Life of Pets, I don't think it made a billion, but it's been very successful. And now you have this, so you know, say what you want about Illumination. They're a money factory, and that counts for a lot for a lot of people. Are you ready for the chart? Yeah. The lowest box office for a, uh, a U.S. box office for a uh, for an Illumination movie, as I'm going to box office mojo, which will actually, you know, allow me to see something for a very, very weird change. Um, the lowest gross lifetime gross in the U.S. for a minion for a uh, Illumination movie is Hop, 
which grossed $108 million over its lifetime. I didn't know that was Secret Life. Yeah, Secret Life of Pets 2, $158 million. Sing 2, $162 million. Now, that was released during the pandemic. The Lorax, $214 million. Despic- the original Despicable Me, $251 million. This is the third Despicable Me, $264 million. The original Sing from Christmas a few years back, two hundred and seventy point three. The Grinch, two hundred and seventy point six. Minions, three hundred and thirty six. Despicable Me Two, three hundred sixty eight. Secret Life of Pets, three hundred and sixty eight point three million dollars domestic. And last but not least, before Mario, Minions: The Rise of Gru. $369.6 billion. Oh, boy. And that's all domestic, right? That is all domestic. And they don't have Mario on this list, but um, they don't have Marvel on, they don't have Super, Super Mario on that list, but it should be. It is an Illumination movie, so. The, the Despicable Me franchise as a whole has made uh, $1.589 billion. Yeah, but that is those those are just insane numbers, and, and nobody will really think that about Illumination. Yeah, they just they literally just print money. It's the craziest thing in the world. Like you, and plus when you give them the backing of Nintendo and the characters and the licensing there that you could potentially run with for a very long time. I mean, that's a match made in heaven. They took the minions and turned them into their own franchise. Yeah. Complete side characters. Very cute and adorable side character. And they again, are. again, and again, that was 2011, Chad. We, oh. We're sitting, we're sitting in 2000, we're sitting in 2023, and they just has uh, minions too. Last year, I didn't, I didn't, hadn't realized it was in 20, 2011. Like at, at once, it feels like closer than that, but also further than that. It's weird. So, the uh, trying to find here. Um, so yeah, it's the Super Mario Brothers is a brisk 92 minutes. It is made exactly half and half 436 million domestic, 439 international, 875 overall. That's just kind of crazy. It's okay. Somebody's just probably dead. It's fine. (laughs) All right. So, so Chad, let me talk to you about something that's been bothering me a little bit because, uh, you know, it, it's we. I'm, you know, I'm this huge MCU nerd. Bought a bunch of MCU DVDs back in the day. I've been on the train since since Iron Man in '08 and saw the midnight premiere and all that. Can you explain to me why this doesn't feel important? This Guardians movie, why there doesn't why there doesn't seem to be any kind of excitement or momentum or energy for this movie? Um, honestly. honestly. I have like I haven't felt excitement for a lot of movies going back, you know, um really coming out of the pandemic. The the last one I can really remember a lot of excitement for um was probably Doctor Strange. That's probably the last one I, I, I like I can feel. Multiverse Madness, yeah. Yes. Uh no matter what the reception was, that's the one I last one I kind of felt that for. Um I didn't like I didn't feel it. Even for uh granted, I'm going in, I wasn't the uh I wasn't a fan of either uh Top Gun or Avatar, but I didn't feel any excitement for those either. I actively thought Avatar was gonna, you know, flame out really quickly. So I I I guess I'm losing what my barometer for what people are excited for. Now, with that said, yeah, I don't I, I kind of that's my worry with Guardians too, that there is no excitement. Um, but I've seen marketing for it. I know people, yeah, I feel they're, people they're doing their job. They're getting yeah. the information out there. I just don't think it's I don't see the like and maybe this isn't necessarily a fair comparison, but like I was in that room when um when the Batman was released in March of 2020. 20, March of 21, right? Or 22? March 22. 22. 22. March 22. You know, we're not in pandemic times at that point. Like, people were actively living their lives at that point. 
it was a packed theater. Like you couldn't, you could barely move. Same thing with Top Gun a few a few weeks later, uh, a few a year later. Um, you know, uh, a few weeks later, it it crowded theater like Force Awakens full theater and excitement and buzz and anticipation. I don't see any of it from the people that we follow on Twitter. I don't really see it from friends of mine who are non-Marvel fans who don't aren't really even aware that there's another Guardians movie coming out anytime soon. Um, it just, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the Marvel fatigue that everybody talks about because you've done all these TV series and all these movies in the last, you know, 18, 24 months. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, just Guardians' window. Because remember, James went away and made a television series and another movie for a complete another studio between like the original release date for Guardians 2 was like 20, 2019 or 2020. Like, you know, this is a film that was supposed to have happened three years ago, and it, it just kind of feels like it's going to exist now. Like the holiday special was re- was received OK, but I don't really remember that taking off awesome either, aside from people just being like, oh, wait, Kevin Bacon's still alive. Cool. Um, so I don't quite know what it is. It just, it's going to be the start of the summer movie season. It's going to be in that kickoff position where all the Iron Man movies had their, their, uh, success where infinity war had a success where, um, Endgame had a success. Um, so it'll be there and it's, I think already projecting over $150 million, but I don't, I guess I don't feel like that. <clears throat> I guess the best way to, to phrase it is. Right now, it feels like we're leading up to Judgment Day, and we're not leading up to WrestleMania. And, like, I feel like we should be leading up to a WrestleMania with as big and as profitable as the Guardians franchise has been. And for this being the swan song for one of two directors, uh, three, one, of, one of two directors to finish their complete trilogies in the MCU. So, I hear you. I, my... And again, I, I you know I share a lot of your concerns because I don't hear a lot of buzz about it. Um, but what I'll point to is the 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 opening day tracking, uh, the opening weekend tracking, which is still tracking to be um, over. When I last saw it, it was one twenty five, and with these movies, if it go if it's going up from from that initial point, it does mean there is some buzz, there is recognition. People are going to go see it, so. I'm, my concern is mitigated by that because it does, just because I'm not seeing it, just because I'm uh, I must I'm out of the loop of what is supposed to be cool right now. Does it doesn't mean that uh, it's, that's actually the case? Um, I and also I put a lot of this on the instability on on me able to get a read on stuff is on the instability of Twitter because there I mean. It has changed so much in the last year. It is harder to find information. Uh, it's harder to, like, I have to keep looking for people, uh, e- even just the people that I follow, what their thoughts are on certain things. And so uh, what was already a small group of people as it was has gotten even smaller. And it's more, and it's harder to find people talking about the same things. So I think that's what's making it difficult for me to gauge. Um, the range as of now is between 120 and 155. Okay, so that is a good range for a Guardians movie. I th- I think it would be it just de- it would definitely be higher than the first. I'm pretty sure it'd be higher than the second. Uh, so if that but that, holds, that didn't stop people from taking a collective dump on Ant Man, right? That, and that was my thing. Even if that holds, it's gonna all it's going to be about the second and third weekend. And again, it's are people going back to see this more than once? Uh, because again, that's how you get those big numbers. And I th- and uh, as much as people are talking about Marvel fatigue, if Guardians is good, I think it will be good. And people go out see it the first weekend. I think it will have legs, and I think it will end up around what the other two Guardians has. Because no Guardians movie has made a, a billion dollars. I think it'll end up, you know, between seven fifty and eight fifty. And I think that's. You know, that's where Guardians lives, and I think that's a success. Uh, so it's just a matter, if people like it, I think it will have some legs. 
even against other summer movies. So the original Guardians opened with 94 million in 2014. The sequel to Guardians in 2017 opened with 146. Okay. So 90, yeah, so 94 and 146. And they're doing a they're doing a IMAX marathon, not locally, but in other other places that'll screen the movie about an hour and a half earlier than most people can get to it. And they're banking a lot on premium large screen formats because they'll have those locked down for about two weeks until, you know, the gravity defiers of Captain Planet show up. Um, so, I mean, and then what was uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania? Opening weekend was... It was over one. 106. <laughs> would you care to take would you care to take a guess what its lifetime domestic gross is? Um it's less than four, so it's three something. Two hundred and twelve million. That's worldwide or just domestic? You, That's you just domestic. The the li- the lifetime domestic gross of the movie is this as of this moment is two hundred and twelve point nine. Yeah, but it opened it opened with hundred and nine. Yeah, well, I, I I think it is uh, it. I think Ant May paid the penance uh, for uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. See, I don't think so because, like, I just I just think that audiences are when when they did Guardians in twenty when they announced Guardians at Comic Con twenty twelve they had just come off of Avengers it was a huge deal thing and everybody I remember clear as day. Scott Calora and Jim Vavita walking out of Hall H after Comic Con 2012 and having to do an explainer video on who the hell the Guardians of the Galaxy were because no one understood or knew who they were. And when you go, when you go and you read the book about the history of the Marvel Studios that I didn't get a chance to write, um, it talks very much in detail about how they figured that they were going to take all of their chips and put it forward on Guardians because if Guardians could work. Then a giant purple chinned alien collecting stone, space stones could potentially work. My concern is um, that the audience is prepared to embrace a lot, but it has to be brought along gradually and can only accept certain things if they're framed correctly. And I don't really feel that Taika did a great job of introducing his over the topness. And I don't think that Quantumania did a great job of, of it, you know, it's it's that problem of how do you explain what the quantum realm is, how it works, why it's important. And then there's John Smith, the majors of that all, and then the problematicality of that going forward. And it's just, I don't think Ant-Man paid the price for Quant- for Love and Thunder. I think Love and Thunder and Quantumania were weird-ass movies. And occasionally, you're going to let a director do a weird-ass movie. It may not bring you as much money as you would like, but it, you know, that's okay. I mean, they're still using characters from the uh, crappy uh, Incredible Hulk movie that Edward Norton was in back in 2008 um, that didn't make a whole bunch of money. So, I I mean, like, if you do consider them episodes of a television series or you can consider them issues of a uh, issues of a comic book like this is an issue couple of issues by a couple of weird writers in one long run and we'll see how they react people react to the next issue when it comes out and people like this artist they like James Gunn they like his weird style they have a personal attachment to Guardians and to Peter Quill and and all of them and maybe just maybe the Christmas special helps because it reintroduces you to those characters and where they're at in a post in game world. Now, how many people saw the holiday special? We have no idea. Um, but we'll, but we'll see if sales quote unquote of this particular, um, issue or, you know, go up. Whereas, you know, the weird different issues have not done as well. Like I, I think if you switch those two movies, I don't think either one of them do great. I don't think either one of them are are great movies. But I think um I think I think Love and Thunder is a better story than Quantum Mania. If you're just straight up asking me, I think I think the the Thor and Jane 
dynamic and that story, which is the heart of like the whole heart of Love and Thunder is, as you can attest, a, a, a story about fathers and daughters, like a, a father and his father's love for his daughter and what that profoundly does to his faith. And intermixed with that is this story about Thor and Jane and her cancer diagnosis and how that impacts Thor. And it's two people losing people that they love just in different ways and how one does it differently than the other. You know, Thor handles his, you know, turns his back on Gore and is like, you know what, dude, do whatever you're going to do, but I'm going to go spend my remaining time that I have with this woman who means the world to me before she has to go. Whereas Gore is like, I believed in you. I gave all of my faith and all my love and all my adoration to you and all my praise. And here I am in my hour of need. And me and my people are in our hour of need. You're just laughing at us. And that just turns into rage and embitterment and all of those things. And so it's, it's two people dealing with grief in two entirely different ways, dealing with grief and loss entirely different ways. And people have experienced grief in both of those ways profoundly throughout the history of time and will forever. And so that to me is a bet was told as a better story, laughing, you know, screaming goats aside and crazy Russell Crowe accent aside, like that's a better story than, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, Paul Rudd having a difficulty connecting with his daughter whom he hasn't had a chance to spend a whole lot of time with. Because to me, the the better story in Quantumania, I did not mean to get on a tangent, but to me, the, the better story in Quantumania is not, you know, Cassie and Scott. It's it, it's Janet and Kang. And how Janet has dealt for this period of time with this sin that she has of having subjected an entire people, a lot of whom she knew personally, to enslavement and torture and death. She took the first train out. She didn't have to go through that. She didn't have to experience that, but she knew she left those people in that, that position. And it's her now knowing that he threatens her family and her seeing the consequences of her actions that lend her to dealing with, with the weight of what she's done and Kane feeling betrayed because he felt he had a partner, somebody he could finally trust who understood it and, and sympathized with him and his plight until she found out who he was. And she made a value judgment on him that she, he doesn't think was just. And so that story is much more powerful to me than the, the, you know, Cassie and, and jokes about her going to prison multiple times and, you know, all these kind of things. So I, so the argument you're making, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. What I'm saying is, well, I think, I think that, like you said, laid out, there is a better story in there for Ant-Man. I think with the story you were laying out for Thor, while you get parts of it, it's not executed well. So, when you because have it's both, surrounded by the screen, because it's surrounded by the screaming goats and the right. and the and the Russell Crowe with the bad accent and the Hercules and all the things. Right, so they focused on all the, the the other things, and those things are what turned it off, and those things I think are what make Thor the weaker movie. So out of the two movies that we actually got, I think the ones that we actually got, Ant Man is the better movie, and I think if you put Ant Man in the place of Thor, put Thor in the place of Ant Man, I think Ant Man does better. I think Thor probably does a little worse, but not. I think Ant Man does. I think Ant Man does better in July because that's its natural home. Both. Both of the previous Ant-Man movies have been released in July. And I think Thor has a stronger name value, especially coming off of Ragnarok, that you can put in in February. And if people think that Ant-Man is a little stronger, they will it will kind of hold the line with Thor. I think once people see Thor, they'll have the same reaction. And it doesn't make... It, it's, it's box office probably doesn't change significantly, but I think Ant-Man's does. So I think people... You know, people are already looking for, they were already saying Marvel's lost step, Marvel's lost step. And after seeing Thor, and then they hear the things about Ant-Man, they're like, okay, so maybe Marvel has lost step, and I won't go see this or, and uh, 
Another factor that we haven't talked about is the fact that we know that all we got to do is wait, what, a few months is going to be on Disney Plus. So if I'm iffy on it, I can just wait and see it streaming. I know I will see it streaming because I have Disney Plus. I think that does factor into it as well. Okay, so July 2022's box office, Minions, The Rise of Group, which we've already talked about, uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, and then um, the D- and then the there isn't really anything any competition with it uh, for it on the 13th, um, where the Crawdads sing was not you know n- not anything close. Pauls of Fury wasn't anything close to competition. Um, you know, uh, Nope would have been competition, but that's three weeks after Thor: Love and Thunder came out. Whereas what was that was February that Ant Quantumania came out. That was February of twenty three. So that was the eighty for Brady, knock at the cabin, um last deal, um, and then the Titanic re release, Magic Mike's Last Dance, uh then uh the Winnie the Pooh horror movie, and then Ant-Man and the Wasp, and there was nothing on the 19th, nothing on the 20th. The House Party movie went direct to HBO Max on the 23rd, and then Cocaine Bear was on the 24th. And then, yeah, and then you didn't have anything to Creed on the 3rd. So from, so, like, I would say actually that Thor could have done better with the competition that surrounded it in February, then Ant-Man could have, or Ant-Man did. Yeah, I'd agree, because, I mean, it was built for Ant-Man to run for at least a month. Um, and it it kind of did, just not very strongly. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it yeah. ran strong for, like, two weeks, and then uh, Cocaine Bear came and wiped the floor with it. Yeah, and this is also me saying that Renfield is a good movie, and deserves your attention and your time. Um, filmed and set in New Orleans. Um, again, if Nicholas, if I had known Nicholas Holt was in New Orleans, I would have talked the hell out of that man, and probably would have been arrested. But um, you know, that's a movie where Cocaine Bear was released in February with a whole bunch of marketing. Violent Night was released out in J- in December with a whole bunch of marketing and word of mouth, and. Um, Megan was released with a whole bunch of marketing in January and a whole bunch of good word of mouth. Renfield had some decent word of mouth, but it's a vampire movie with Nicolas Cage at the forefront of it, and you put it in April. Like, that doesn't make any sense and doesn't do it any favor. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, I just, I don't, yeah, so I, I just don't understand how you can do so well with three movies. In the fourth movie, just kind of gets thrown to the side. Um, so let's let's talk about a couple of other Marvel notes that I wanted to pick up on because we haven't had a really ch- a really good chance to sit and talk about them for a hot second. Um, what's your take on the Jonathan Majors situation, and what is the current status of Kang Dynasty? Because you're talking about the next the next official Marvel Avengers movie. And you're talking about the next time you're supposed to see him as a character is Loki season two, which now I would imagine would be done in the fall after Ahsoka is over um, because you're doing Secret Invasion in June. All right. So Uh, the Jonathan Major situation is incredibly. uh, For those who for those who don't know, run run down the whole deal with the allegations and then the, the text messages and then the fire being released by his representation. Okay, so uh, let's see. Best I can tell, uh, like a month ago, um, we got, I think it was like on a Sunday, randomly. Right around, got, right around the time that he was doing press for Creed 3. Yeah, it, it would have been after that because uh, uh, he got to disappear because there was nothing going on. But it was like within like a week of him doing that thing with uh, Michael B. Jordan, like, Michael B. Jordan getting his uh, star in a Hollywood Walk of Fame. Like within a week of that, um, Jonathan Majors was arrested. Uh, the news we got was that uh, um, basically domestic violence. He it was like he 
it slash strangled a woman or something like that. Uh, to the point where she had to be sent to the ICU. Right. Uh, his people quickly said that he did no wrong. He had no fault. That, you know, uh, I think that at some point they even said he's the one that called the cops and uh, like he got arrested because it was like standard police business, yada, yada, yada. They, but they had evidence to exonerate him, all this stuff. So we get that. And then, you know, everybody's doing what they do, but uh, we're kind of in a holding pattern. We're like, okay, so they say they have evidence and whatnot. And like the next day, there were reports that the charges were dropped. And then the following day, there were they basically say, no, the police are actually processing uh, him and these charges and whatnot. Uh, since that point, it's really been a whole bunch of wait and see, except for, you know, they said they had evidence to exonerate him. So within a week, his team released these text messages from a text exchange between him and the uh, and the victim, in which the lawyer presented them as evidence that he was good to go, that he would that he was totally exonerated. And when I read them the first time, I re- I, I really looked around and was like, "Am I the slow person? Because this does not." So this is not free him of any charge. I don't really think it does him anything good. And then, and I really thought I was, it was me. I really thought I was not smart enough to get the lawyer's strategy. But then everybody read it and other people I know, including lawyers were like, this is, this is the opposite of what they're going for. Because it never said that, she never said that he didn't do it. Uh, The most she said was that she didn't want him to get arrested and they were doing it because they have to when this kind of call happens. And she said, it's my fault for trying to take your phone. Which people with experience said, you know, this is typical victim, uh, typical victim of domestic violence. They take on all the responsibility because they think they did something wrong. So really, there's been nothing since then. Uh, TMZ has a report where, again, his team is saying they have Video evidence to exonerate. Are you are you, uh, are you forgetting the multiple other women who've come forward? Oh well, though I don't think we have like official ones yet. Uh, but there they've been. We've got lots of word that there are other women that are coming forward, and with that, uh, we've also had other people that are aware of him from his time at Yale and whatnot that have not spoken very highly of him. There have been some tweets. Uh, the the one I saw that passed around the most was uh, of someone saying saying before all this happened that there was somebody in Hollywood that just come on the scene that people were really in love with and they basically said this dude's a sociopath and I'm surprised it's and, and it kind of makes me sick to see everybody fawning over him. They said this well before uh, these allegations happened and people have pulled them up since then and been like that's who that this person is talking about. So. It appears that there's some form of rumors that have been floating around about him, especially in New York and uh, Yale, where he went to grad school circles for a while. Nothing has come out. So outside of the original charge, there's nothing official yet, but there's a lot around it. And with that has come the uncertainty of what are you going to do with Jonathan Majors? Uh, The fact everybody and, and from what I'm hearing, everybody's sitting there waiting, looking at Disney, because they figure if anybody's going to know anything first, it's going to be Disney uh, before anyone else. And Disney hasn't done anything to him yet. And I think they haven't done anything to him yet because, again, like everybody else, they don't really know. And as of right now, they don't really need to know in the immediate. I mean, they don't, well, they would like to, but I think their G Day to actually like, Real deal, know something is like early to really do something is like early next year because King Dynasty is coming. And I think they would have to start getting ready for that next year. It's coming out in 2026. So they don't actually have to shoot it for like about two years. So they have time to kill. But I know they want to, well, we don't know what the plans are with Loki. May 2nd, 2025. Oh, 2025. Okay. So yes, they have to do something. Uh, late this year, early next, because they would they would have to start filming in the spring of twenty 
24 for that. Yeah, so like a year from now, we'll be in production of Kane Dynasty. So they have time, but you know, you want to do something sooner than later. Um, so for me, I, I think you don't want to move too fast just in case they actually do have something that clearly exonerates do. You don't want to be no, like you pull the trigger and he was innocent, you know, but you in this climate, you can't let him, if he's done it and there's no credible way to disprove it or that more comes, he's got to be gone. I think if there's nothing to exonerate him, like in the next month or so, I think that probably means there's nothing to exonerate him and he's pretty much done. Right, wrong, and different, he's pretty much done. The, the Ezra the, the Ezra idea, if, if he can wait it out, things don't become a tidal wave, you can you can make it work. The, but see, with Ezra, it was, it was a whole thing of he did all these things after they shot that movie. And he's such a big part of that movie, they couldn't do anything else. Marvel is like, well, worst comes to worst. And, we, and he is guilty of this, and we can't do anything with him. Worst comes to worst, you, Loki comes to goes, and then you just move on. And that, I mean, and that's what's, probably, the great, what's, what's the great line in Iron Man 2? I'm here, deal with it. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, you just and the nature of Kang, he he's a he's a man of many variants. Just make the variants look different and nobody cares. But as I'm as I'm walking through this, so I think what happens is unless something really, really damning happens before uh summer, I think you just ride Loki out. And then after Loki, you officially make the change. Because then by that point, there should be enough evidence, there should be enough information for you to make a, an educated decision on, on what's going on. Uh, no use in doing it before, before Loki when you know he's going to be in Loki. Yeah, and that's why you move Loki to the back end of the seat of the year. To prevent, their, per, to prevent there from having to be a press tour right now where he would be asked questions. Because to me, ideally, you put Loki in the same place that you were that you put um, season one, which is in the summer, June to August. Um, you know, and instead it will be um, it'll be Secret Invasion and Ahsoka that take up those those spots. So, um, you know, it, it's to me you would have done it in June, uh, timing wise, but for other reasons, you it's better to move it to the back end. Give yourself some time, see what's going on. And then if everything's okay, you do put him with a good PR agent. You, by the way, he's going to have to get new representation because his folks dropped him. And you put him with a good PR team and you, you say, this is what you say when you're asked questions about it. And you move, you address it and you move forward. And, you know, if the, if there's not a tidal wave of, of news and, and bad reports about it, then you can most likely survive. I, I think that could work, but I really don't think like if there's, if there's too much that comes out of it. Now I don't even think they take the chance. You just cut your losses with it. Speaking of cutting losses, uh, the Marvel brass got a little bit thinner at the top over the course of the last few months. Your thoughts, sir, on the highest-ranking female in Marvel Studios being told to go home? Allegedly, over a Best Picture documentary nominee, I'm sort of conflicted uh, because I know because of what you said. You know, she is the one of the highest rated. She's Latina. She's a woman, and she's uh she's a, a lesbian. Like so, that checks a lot of your diversity boxes. Not like that's what we all want to worry about, but she from from accounts. She was good at what she does, and she did all those things, and she was a really strong uh, proponent. A really strong and female voice. She's a really strong female voice, and her her name and her imprint is all over the book, uh, the making of book for for the first three pages. So, like, she was a vital part of what they were doing. She's she is part of the reason she got done as a TV show. Right, and, and she and she's not just important just to Marvel. But to Disney and to you know the industry overall. So when you say you're firing her over 
participating in in this documentary uh, like that's something that's culturally important to her it does sound like there's no way to make that sound good now if the reports are true and she start she went and started this work without going to Disney first uh you might not like it but business is business and business says you don't do that then she's got to go to them and she's got to go to them and at least tell them that she wants to do this and explain the reasons why and then let them take the bad heat if they tell her no i don't know if they would tell her no uh but she did it without telling them and then when they found out they were like okay allegedly yeah allegedly when they found out they were like okay well you can you've done it so far what you've done so far is fine. You can't actively participate anymore. I don't even think they were stripping her of her, like telling her she couldn't get the producer's credit on it. We're just like, can't work on it anymore from that point on. And apparently they put it in writing. And from that point, she repeatedly went against what was decided and kept working on that project. And the straw that brought the camera back was or being on the rear carpet promoting that movie and not Black Panther, which Marvel Studios actually was up for Oscars for. So just in contractual terms, like because of how because of who she is and how important she is, if she went and did it and they found out and they and they basically gave her a slap on the wrist and and said, okay, no more, but this you're cool. I think she got that because of who she is. Now repeatedly going back and still being told not to do it and still doing it anyway, that's when it's like, okay, I know who you are. I know what you've done. But if we let you keep doing this, that means everybody else is going to test us and we really can't do this. So we got to take your scalp and put it up so people won't try to test us. We can just point at it and be like, okay, yeah, I don't want that. So I understand it from that side as well um but i i you know we i still don't know if we know the whole story i doubt we know the whole story still but from everything i've heard i i feel confident what i'm saying from the information that i have right now here here's my deal it's a passion project for her that she helped finance that she had a very big hand in making because it's subject matter that is very very important to her and that's a that's okay. That you know, that's Spike Spike Lee when did the uh, the when the levees broke. You know, that's a bit that was a very important, very personal Katrina documentary for him to make. Uh, every you know, Ken Burns has made a living off of documentaries that are important for him to make. Um, and documentary feature itself is not it's not like to me anyway. It's not like Disney put forth a the making of Wakanda Forever. In the in for consideration for best documentary feature, and it got nominated, and she chose to put Argentina 1985 over that. Like it, it they they weren't up for the same award. Yes, Wakanda Forever was there and had awards for other things, but she, like, she was going to actively campaign for a movie or for a documentary that was up for best documentary feature. That she had helped finance, that she had helped, uh, you know, bring, get distribution, secure distribution for about a subject matter that was very deeply important to her. She was going to go promote that over a movie where she would have been on a red carpet, asked a few questions at the at the Black Panther premiere, and no one would have even noticed anything. You know, this was more important to her to be a part of the premiere for this this documentary which then in turn went and got nominated for an Oscar. Now, it wasn't going to win. We we talked about this on our Oscar preview podcast. That was Navalny's uh, Oscar to lose. Navalny was done, uh, had the same kind of momentum that the People versus O.J. Simpson had, the same kind of momentum that Bowling for Columbine had, the same kind of momentum that uh, um, an, incre- uh, an incredible warning for uh, whatever the Al Gore movie was uh, back in the early 2010s. Uh, an inconvenient truth. Um, like that, that uh, Navalny has a documentary in that category, had that kind of momentum. She wasn't, they weren't going to win. 
but she wanted to at least give all of her time, energy, and effort to trying to help it win. And I don't think that that's a huge conflict of interest for a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate that wasn't even competing in the same category. I don't. I, I don't think so either. Um, I think it's more the point of establishing. Hey, we caught, hey, we, hey, we caught you, and you continue to do it and make actively make this choice anyway after we right. told you stop. Right. It, it's it's kind of the insubordination of it. I really if she, if she would have went and asked them first, even if they would have said no, you can play a little hardball and be and and let it leak and then have people publicly turn on their decision and then make them look like the bad guys. You can just sit back and then let them and, and let them take enough heat where they're like, okay, fine. You can do this one thing because of these parameters. It is a uh, a passion project. It is about your culture, your culture, your heritage. Uh, and it is and a format that is not something that your particular studio is up against. So fine. But this is the first and only time by her just if it's true that they caught her, wrote it down, and then she not once, but like it seems like several times just said, now nah, I'm gonna do it anyway. I mean, what do you want them to do? That's like bold face, just like not respecting what you're saying. Yeah, and and but it was just came as a shock and a surprise to everyone because no one was really aware of the processes that were going on behind the scenes. And and like I said, that Oscar campaign for the best documentary feature was not a hot race. So it's not like, you know, Hollywood insiders were really in tune to what was going on with that particular race. So it 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 just seemed to catch everybody by surprise and unawares. Cause again, I think like I like I texted you um upon hearing of the news is like if I'd have had to put money on which which Marvel executive I thought was gonna go, um leave the fold first, she wouldn't have been in my top five. No, no no um, especially not the way that Kevin talks about her and the way that she's prominently featured and prominently talked about in every Marvel documentary that Disney has. Yeah. Um, it's Ryan Coogler. Like somebody asked him what it's like working for Marvel. And he described it as it's like working with Kevin and his two friends. One of the two friends is Victoria Alonso. So that's how close she was to him and how, wrapped up she is into the Marvel machine. So, yeah, I would never thought it either. And maybe she just got too hot-headed. Maybe she was just so doggedly determined that this was a, a thing that she was going to do, that she was willing to risk what was going to happen. Right. I mean, only she can answer those questions. Yeah. So, Chad, since we last talked, footage has hit the Internet. Footage of a giant bomb rolling through the streets of the Vatican. Shots of Jason Manoa, Momoa do-broing it up in the, his do-broiest ways. And footage of Vin Diesel with his small child not in a car seat, in the front seat of his car, of his Camaro, whatever the hell it is, driving down the face of the Hoover Dam. Probably to submerge himself in water and die. But regardless, your thoughts, sir, on the final hype-up trailer for Fast 10. I'm going to say two things about this movie. I'm going to say two things about this trailer. And I hope to move on and not discuss it again, even though I know you're going to try to raise my blood pressure and make me talk about it some more. My two things are, watching this trailer, it is very, very clear that Jason Momoa is having the time of his goddamn life. Like, you can just feel him just operating with such giddy joy that he gets to do all this goofy Building this crap, and he gets paid for it. It's got to be the best job in the world for him. And for that, I am happy. I'm so happy. I'm thrilled for him. Now, um, so when my daughter was in second grade and they were trying to learn a little bit, you know, about physics, uh, one of their little projects was to build a, a, a parachute. I'm sure lots of you have done it. Um, you take materials. And you try to construct a simple machine, a simple device that will support and protect an egg from being dropped from the roof of a school building, normally a one-story school building, um, and to to land on the ground safely. 
most people build it with some form or fashion of a parachute. Um, so that is how early people are taught about physics and how gravity works and how gravity works on items, even items that aren't particularly heavy. And the egg is a perfect, you know, metaphor for things falling and how gravity has effects on it. Again, so, just ask Shane McMahon. Shane, yeah, Shane is, is, is explaining that to you. So with all that said, um, whoever wrote, whoever shot, whoever de- designed certain sequences in this movie has less of an understanding than second graders about how physics works and what you can and cannot do. Because I'm here to tell you, if you were to try to ram a car through the, di- the, through the thick concrete on the top of the Hoover Dam, even if you made it through all that concrete, I don't think you, per- I don't personally think you have enough room to get enough speed to ram through that. But let's say you do. Um, I, outside of a video game, I don't know of a world where you can do that, go over the Hoover Dam. And then the world magically like orientates itself so that the dam shifts underneath you as a road so you can drive your car on the dam, not, not even just in a straight line, but actually making maneuvers. Granted, we didn't see the maneuvers, but I'm pretty sure I feel very confident saying that there are very complicated driving maneuvers that take place as this car is going down the newly reoriented Hoover Dam to race to the bottom. And all of that, all of that will be well and good if we were doing this inside of a video game where they're trying to overcompensate for our lack of skills, but give us this thrilling action sequence anyway. That's not where we're at. We are here in a stupid Fast and the Furious movie where this man has jumped off the Hoover Dam. Not only did he jump off, Hoover Dam in a car. It's not like he casually went over where his car will just kind of tilt and touch the, 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 the dam. No. It gets, some, it gets some space in between. But yet still, I'm supposed to believe that, you know, the gravity and physics that tells me that this thing went out this far, it has no way to propel itself back to the, to the dam. That means it's just out there. And we call that falling Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way the stupid ass car can orientate can orientate itself back onto the dam. Not only to drive, to actually have traction and drive and steer as you are falling. Again, you are not driving; you are falling over the Hoover Dam. That's how they chose to end this trailer with telling my lying eyes that gravity doesn't work. That's what they're working on with me. And you know what? Ever since Brian started dragging me to these stupid-ass movies, there's always a bridge in these movies where I'm like, okay, there's too, it's, it's too much. I can't do it. It's too much. It started with the rock, bitch-pressing a missile on an ice lake. I'm supposed to believe that's the thing that can happen. Again, the rock looks... The Lamborghini. Don't forget about the Lamborghini on ice. A Lamborghini. Lamborghinis are made to go fast. They're not made to have a whole lot of traction, and you gave it even less. And I'm supposed to believe that's happening. Um, then we have the stupid mad cars, and the last thing where magnet works on some things down the street, but not the other things down the street. Because why would it? Why waste a good time? We're here for a good time, not a long time. And a long time, I guess, means a sensible time. But this, I mean, Grant, they drove cars. From one big tall-ass Abu Dhabi building to another tall-ass Abu Dhabi building. Again, still able to steer, and nobody died. But you want me to believe. I mean, in all the things I just said, outside of the magnets, when things fall, they fall. Hell, there's a sequence in here. Jason Moore's origin story requires him falling off a bridge. But I'm supposed to let these people tell me that no, 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 this instance of falling, now nah, he's just driving. And as you pointed out, what the hell is he going to do when he gets to the bottom? He is falling, driving off of the Hoover Dam. There's nothing down there but 
cold waves, and death. That's it. But here we are. That's where we're at with the stupid ass movie. I've talked a lot about my second part. I tried to keep it together. I think I did a good job. I didn't get too overexcited. I'm going to let Brian talk now, and I'm sure he's going to say something that's going to have the eyes pop out the back of my head. But y'all can't see that, so just take his word for it. Stupid ass. So, Chad, help me to understand something. Why would the uh, great and bold and, and very prosperous Fast and the Furious team, why would they not try to actively get people away from the giant rolling bomb that is rolling downhill? Because guess what? The Vatican is sits on top of a hill. So if you, you drop something at the start of the hill, it rolls all the way down to the bottom. So why wouldn't you be making an active effort to get people away from the top of the hill? When have they ever cared about the public? I mean, I guess that's fair. Um, yeah, man. I mean, uh, let, let's not forget, the so-called best movie in this franchise is them driving, dragging a safe through a goddamn city that they have not evacuated with cars on the road. And what's the body count? Nobody cares. Well, that plays into this movie because Momoa Momo was one of the one of the hired guns that was in one of those cars that got knocked off to the side. Uh, when, he's El when, Chapo's son. Yeah, when they uh, when they uh, um, you know knocked the uh, safe into the water there. Um, this is insane. This is crazy. And like now you've got this thing where like my biggest frustration from them is not a physics thing. I just accept that they're going to embrace the crazy stuff. A beat up Oldsmobile basically got sent into space in the last one. Like, you know, to, to you know, it, they sent a Pontiac, they sent a, a beat up Pontiac into lower orbit, so low, a high enough orbit to where they could see and dock with the International Space Station. Like, I, I am done. Like, you, you do, you do, you, pal. If you want to do crazy, insane stuff, I'm glad we're getting back to street lace racing for at least a couple of minutes in this movie. Great. More power to you. Come a long way since boosting DVD players. Got it. Good. Here's my thing. You introduced Cypher, played by the brilliant, uh, the brilliant Charlize Theron, and you hired her to play your overarching Thanos villain of your franchise that was going to culminate in everything. And yet, she has done nothing but basically align herself with people who hate Don Toretto Put them in the position to go get Dom Toretto and have them fail and have her fly away until she can find somebody else to, again, antagonize the Toretto family. At what point does your bid, you know, just Thanos put on the glove and be like, fine, I'll do it myself. Like, at what point do you actually have your big bad villainess actually take Dom on and beat Dom or at least make it appear that she might have been in a position to do so? Like, enough of Michelle Rodriguez coming out and saying, Momo is the greatest villain we've had in the franchise yet. Like, enough of this, this BS. They, they did the whole thing with John Cena turning heel in the last movie, only to turn face at the end of it. They did the, the whole, the, you know, they've set up Pipes Cypher to be such an, a bold and different and cold and ruthless antagonist that she could be the ultimate endgame for their series. And yet here we are in film 10 of of 11 and she's still just hiring folks to go get Dom Toretto who have a beef with him while she stands back and finances. Them. Like she literally was like trapped in a box for the majority of, of the last film, you know, like why, why are we doing this? Why did Charlize Theron agree to this? This makes no sense. Uh, money. She likes money. I mean, she turned Dom Toretto against her, his family, right? And he revealed he she shot Dom's baby mama in the head in front of her, in front of him. Like you establish that this is a badass woman who is after him and wants to destroy him. And you establish why she wants to destroy him and his family. But she spends eight, nine and ten just basically or, or at least nine and ten, basically hiring guns out to take him out. People who have a beef with him or have screwed him over in some kind of way. I mean, at the very least, why can't we just do a freaking Sinister Six thing and just, like, go find five other people who have a problem with Dominic Toretto and his family? And now we get the, you know, instead of the Fast and the Furious, we get the Fast and the Furious and the, and the uh, 
in the Sinister Six. I mean, maybe they can I find mean, put Olympus arms on uh, on uh, on one of them. Who knows? That requires your enemies to stay your enemies and not become part of your family. That's another, yes, that's another trope that does happen quite a bit. Pe- people who come after your family who only turn out to be family members themselves. See Dwayne Johnson. See uh, uh, see uh, Bernard Shaw. Both Shaw boys, actually. And the Shaw mom. <laughs> you, you beat my son. You put my son in jail. You nearly beat my other son to death. But I still love you, Dom. I'm gonna awkwardly look here and uh, eyeball you while you, you uh, talk to me with my with uh, with my eyes. Yeah. And there yeah, you go, Chad. Yeah. Just giving you the image of Helen Mirren and Vin Diesel together in bed. I didn't hear that. <laughs> that I is exactly that is exactly what is implied in every single scene that they are in together. That there is this sexual nope. chemistry between the two of them. Nope. I don't believe you. So I mean, just answer me. Like, why? Like. Why would they do this to themselves? Because she clearly seems like she was set up to be the Thanos, and Thanos has been spending a lot of time letting other people collect Infinity Stones. When are they going to let her collect her own stones, Chet? Um, never. They only got one more movie to do it, so if you're going to end this, like, Cypher has to end this movie as, with a distinct victory over the family and in a position to make more, do more harm in the final movie. I mean, I, I would assume that's what's going to happen. She's going to do her damage next movie, but you know, what do I know? Uh, were you at all surprised that they're they're bringing Lamore back for uh, or Lumiere back for uh, for Eleven? Uh, I honestly didn't think about it when I heard it. Um, I was like, I mean, why not? But then I remember it's it's him and some of the other movies he's made, and I was like. And that he was kind of like a battlefield replacement for uh, for Justin Lin, so I can see why people would would feel a way about it. But I eh. mean, Lin Lin has the most Fast and the Furious movies to his credit, so he was the most natural to flow from eight uh, from nine to ten to eleven, and he had a contract for all three. And then you saw what happened between him and Vin. Um, F. Gary Gray survived what had to be the most hellacious. You know, that's the, that period on that Fast and the Furious movie was so mentally damaging to that man. He agreed to make MIB International and was never heard from ever again. Like, you know, this franchise does stuff to directors and like working with Vin in a post um, in, in a uh, uh, a post um, Brian era, a, a post, uh, you know, um, uh, what's it's like Paul a, late a, a post Paul Walker world? Um, it's just you know, apparently it's not easy, and uh, you know, it makes sense that they're getting along good right now. And Lord knows Universal is going to want a quick turnaround on the penultimate movie in this franchise. And I'd be willing to make a bet that this movie ends on a cliffhanger. Um, you know, we'll see, but but again, like if you're Universal. What happens after this? Because you've tried spinning it off and it didn't really work. Uh, that's a good point. I don't know. Um, I doubt they completely let it go because, you know, money. But I don't know what you do. Maybe uh, change your pairings. The Rock and Statham didn't work, but maybe another pairing will. I mean, it worked. Statham and uh, Rock and Statham worked. It just didn't work to the tune of a billion dollars. But it, it worked. It just wasn't a billion dollar hit. So I mean, it just it's it's interesting. And I think it's going to be an interesting place once Universal finishes this out. Because again, most of the reason why you would keep Lamore around um, is because you just need the continuity. Because you got to do a quick turnaround to start shooting on Eleven. I mean, weren't they supposed to be doing this like all at once? Um, it wasn't. They were, ex- go- they, they were going to, and then when Justin stepped away, that became impossible. Okay. Okay. See, I missed that part. Like literally, like literally, like he did an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago, I want to say, where he was basically talking about how there were already some set pieces that were so far into post uh, pre-production that there was no way he could change them. Like, you know, you know, when Peyton came on board for uh, Edgar on on the original Ant-Man movie, they could they were just they had a script, but they hadn't started previs or anything. So he could change 
what the set pieces were and all of that kind of stuff and basically make the movie his own. You couldn't do that here. They were already two weeks into production on this thing. Like there were there was only so much that he could do from a from a visual effects set design standpoint set uh set piece standpoint that he you know this train was moving. He just had to hop on it. Um, the next the next one he's gonna be conducting the train and I look forward to seeing whether or not he can survive six months with Vin Diesel in that role. Uh, it'll be too late. Yes, it will. All right, Chad, that'll about do it for this week's episode of the Movies on the Brain podcast. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan. At the Mets Theory. Thank you very much, and all hail Stephanie McMahon. Oh, here we go.